Ladies and gentlemen, how do? Hello and welcome to Mondo Street Social Club, a new podcast aimed at bringing creative minds together. Mondo Street is about sharing the creative process, discussing the highs and lows, and talking about how we cope when the creative genie eludes us. Pull up your comfy chair, put on your best headphones, and enjoy the next hour. Hello and welcome to Mondo Street Social Club. Uh, today I am joined by uh, Matthew Robinson, award-winning director, writer and producer, all the way from uh, sunny Los Angeles, uh, while I sit in rainy grey Derbyshire. Uh, Matthew, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me here on the show today. You're welcome. It's really good to meet you. I know we've we've done a little bit of uh, backwards and forwards over messaging, setting this up and uh, getting the time zones right. Uh, it's It's really good thank you for for joining me um how have you been i've been pretty good you know la even though we're known for sunny weather we actually had a very unnaturally cold and wet winter and so uh it's finally starting to get la again in terms of like the weather and it's actually very nice (laughs) yeah Oh, lovely, lovely. So, so I referenced then at the start that you're award-winning director writer producer um that's a that's a heck of a skill set for somebody who is so young compared <laughs> to me definitely young um do you want to talk us through how you got to where you are today oh man well you know it's uh it's funny uh, well it all started when i was a child now <laughs> but you know, <laughs> you know are you uh, sitting comfortably then we'll begin <laughs> right right no well, honestly i've always had the love for writing i i used to fill up my composition books as a kid in early back as first grade, I was writing stories and sci-fi and fantasy and adventure and comedies. And I just write them and then I give it to my friends to read and they take it away, my composition book for, away for a week and they write it. You know, all my friends were in the adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for a long time, I was actually gonna be an archeologist. I was gonna be, I was very into archeology. span I wanted to be a journalist for like Nat Geo and uh, Smithsonian. And I went to, an event at the Amazon Theater. I grew up in DC, then my family moved to Cincinnati. And the Amazon Theater is this big theater in Cincinnati. They had uh, James Cameron and his team were there for their underwater archeology span um, documentary and about the Titanic. And I was probably the youngest kid there by a good 10 years. And you know, everyone else was there because they, they wanted to talk about Titanic and they wanted to talk about you know Terminator and all these James Cameron movies. And I was like this kid who was like, just kept raising his hand and asking about like, so how do you like write underwater? Do you have like special pencils? It's, you know, that's the question is I want to know. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's funny as, as James and all of them started talking about the filmmaking process, I was already a big fan of movies, but it kind of started to seep in and I was like, oh, making movies would be fun too, wouldn't it? And slowly that overtook um, my love of archeology span for my career path. And so the world lost an archeologist, but they gained a writer director. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's uh, that's really fascinating that, that, that seeing James Cameron at such a young age, you, you, you basically saw the very, very, top of the tree didn't you you saw the one of the most successful directors of all time 
flying the stride. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's like, you know, you're a kid. I was like probably like 11, uh, 12. So, you know, I didn't really fully grasp how cool it was to meet him, which is probably why I just kept asking him and one of the other archaeologists there just a ton of questions. Because, you know, everyone was so timid and, they, you know, everyone's hands go up. And he's like, he's like, who has a question? And, then, you know, everyone's hands going up. He's like, that's not about the movie Titanic. And then, like, you know, half the audience's <laughs> hands go down sort of thing. But, but you know, yeah. that archaeology love never left me. I loved writing historical fiction and uh, sci-fi and everything. So, you know, it's very much the research I like to do to get into those worlds and understand them both as a writer and or director, it's still kind of like doing those deep dives and studying the history and culture of something. So it, that love is still there. It just has now manifested in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we, we mostly see you doing uh, Indiana Jones 6 then, or is it 7 or 8? <laughs> can't remember where, where they're up to now. I, it's, it's 5 <laughs> or 6. And there's also like the Indiana Jones like TV show or TV specials they used to do with like Young Indiana Jones and yeah yeah that was uh i think river phoenix was in one wasn't he? yeah he was he was i i never saw any of them when the when the, the road split for you between archaeology and and filmmaking and writing how did you how did you progress from that did, did your family accept that easily you know my family was very supportive i've had a lot of friends who their families are very unsure about it my family you know they're big movie and theater people even though they they, they mostly work in education and you know public service mm -hmm. so but they were always big fans you know my dad and mom used to show me old movies on tcm and my dad would rent us mm -hmm. old movies in the library and everything we just watched them so it was we were always a big movie tv theater family uh so they were very supportive mm -hmm. and i started to plan my kind of goals and throughout high school and into college i started writing scripts and shooting short films tried different genres, trying to find my voice. And uh, in college, I went to Pepperdine mm -hmm. University. And there I studied media production with an emphasis in political science, which is a very interesting um, hodgepodge of, of viewpoints. But uh, on while at Pepperdine, I worked on a great sketch comedy show called The Random Show, which has been on for over 25 years. Now it's, it's kind of like in a back and forth hiatus. But at the time, it was a sketch comedy show, things like Monty Python, Saturday Night Live, you know, Key and Peele, where everyone would get together and the students would just make their own shorts. So we had 30 minutes worth of shorts from different groups of people. And then we show them in the big theater uh, at the end of the month or the beginning of the month. And then that would be the latest episode. So that kind of built a really strong bond of going out there and experimenting while I was in college. I made two, uh, during the summers when I went home, I made two feature films with my friends. And, uh, and then I made another feature film in college with my buddies that was kind of became our senior thesis. And uh, that one you can actually watch on Amazon Prime. It's called Death Suspects a Murder. And it's got a couple of actors on there who you might recognize. They've gone on to become fairly successful like uh, Michelle Weaver, who was on the Oprah Winfrey Network show, Love Is, Council of Dads on NBC. Now she's on a real uh, House Husbands of Hollywood. So, you know, there's there's been some people and some things that we've done and we've gotten to experiment with it. Uh, this is, you know, this is kind of becoming a long way to answer, but that was kind of how I got my start. I, I just went out and I just started shooting movies with my cheap camera. And, 
you know, I got a tripod for Christmas and I was like the greatest gift they can possibly get, you know, sort of thing. It, it reminds me of, um, and, the, and the name of the film escapes me, came out, which is basically Steven Spielberg's. Um, oh, so uh, Fableman's? That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, because the the young the young Spielberg in inverted commas has a similar approach to it. You know, he's bitten by that bug, and in high school he starts to make these films. Um, but it, it it must be incredible to have that passion. So so that passion then drove you through college, um, what we call the university over here, but college, I suppose. Um, and then when did it actually when did you realize that you could actually make a living out of it oh you know it's a weird thing and I, I don't mean this in an arrogant way but i always felt like i was going to make a living off of it uh there was there was never really a moment where i there were some times where i definitely had some doubts that i could cut it in la i was in college and i was really discouraged i was having trouble making friends because I, at the time, I was going to community college, Santa Monica College, before I went to Pepperdine. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a lot of money. And so I couldn't hang out with anyone. Uh, I couldn't go anywhere just because I was so limited. I was out, way out in the boonies, having to commute in to, uh, to, a, to Santa Monica Community College. So if I didn't get to the last bus, by, I think the last bus came at 7 p.m., 8 p.m. If I didn't catch that bus, I was completely screwed. There's no way for me to get home. Uh, so I never really got to hang out much with my friends that I made in, uh, at community college. So eventually when I transferred to Pepperdine, I came in, but it took a while as a transfer student to make friends. And I just remember being so miserable. I called up my mother. I, I distinctly remember where I was, and I said, I can't do this. I'm so lonely. I, I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. I'm, you know, how am I going to make it in a city this big? It's like, I'm just going to transfer to Ohio State. It's less money. Uh, I'll be happier. I'll be able to make more friends. And my mother was like, I will literally, <laughs> I was like, I will literally cut you off if you move out of LA. You don't, he's like, you are always going to do this. This is what you were meant to do suck it up you know <laughs> and it's like you don't get to come back here and give up and then expect us to just be okay with that so that was kind of the kick in the pants i needed uh but you know i just i always knew i could do it this past few this past year i've been working completely freelance and even though i sometimes it feels like i'm dog paddling to keep my head above water every time it looks like how am i going to pay this bill how am i going to catch up on the rent how am i going to do this I'll get a job, I'll get a gig, I'll get that next thing. Yeah. Um, whether it's producing, directing, or writing something for someone, and then all of a sudden I'm okay. And so, you know, I, yeah, maybe that is say, but I, I, I just always felt I could do it. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's brilliant because the, the, the greatest thing when, you, when you've got a passion like that and when you've got the, the creative bug is self-belief because yeah. self-doubt turns the turns the taps off doesn't it? it it stops you from doing things i think so i mean i'm not sure you know your experience but i think it's like you have to believe it before anyone else does because if you don't believe it people can like kind of smell it on you you know They're yeah. like, oh, this, person doesn't, this person doesn't believe it so, and so they, they just kind of they just kind of ignore you 
<laughs> that is a very, very good point. It's like sharks, you know, people can smell that that self-doubt and half of convincing people is looking convincing, is looking as though you do know what you're talking about. So uh, having a good level of confidence never hurts anybody. It really doesn't. I wish I could transfer a little bit more of that. I've gotten better over the years, but I wish I could transfer a little bit more of that confidence when it came to like, uh, like online dating or something, you know, <laughs> like somehow put that out there, uh, you know, but it, when it comes to, you know, film, theater, I'm just in my element. I always feel very at home. It doesn't matter how stressful it gets financially for myself or on the production itself. I just have this like, I go to a different place. I become a different person. When I'm writing a script, I become this completely different person from who I am. So that kind of makes it exciting and addictive as well to just be able to walk into a room and have the confidence. You know, I, I can feel like I'm six feet tall when I'm working on a movie. Uh, I'm five seven in real life. So it's, it's, uh, All right. <laughs> it's like, you know, I go on a movie set and I'm like, oh, I got this. Let's go. It's like, oh, we only have like we have half the budget that we need. Doesn't matter. I'm going to get this done, you know, <laughs> but it's come from years of experimenting with my friends and having safe places to fail throughout high school and college. I've been graduated now from college almost 11 years, 11 years next week. Good Lord, I'm old. Um, and, uh, but, you know, that's how it is. <laughs> I, I interviewed a, um, a singer songwriter uh, who's over in the UK, a lady called Carol Hodge, and I will forever sing her praises because she is a phenomenally talented artist and we were talking about imposter syndrome um mm. and, and carol was saying because she, she's played with some really famous musicians over here and, and she truly is gifted uh so we talked about imposter syndrome a little bit but then we talked about how having that um having that self-belief which enables you to be creative but then that creativity is soothing so any anxiety that you might have is soothed when you are in that creative frame of mind. And that then gives you confidence to move on and move on. I think, you know, I think there's a really a lot of truth to that. And I think that's, I mean, it's a great way. I, I don't know if I have imposter syndrome. So yeah, this might be too much information <laughs> to say on a podcast, but um, no, um, I, in 2020, I went, I went to a therapist. Um, I had some little extra disposable income. And we were talking for a few months and I was like, well, I might have imposter syndrome. And I, I laid out to her what I was feeling. He's like, I don't think you have imposter syndrome. I think you have Jonah complex. And I was like, what the hell is Jonah complex? And she was like, Jonah complex is when you know you have the ability to do something, you have the ability to complete a task to be successful, but you are afraid of the success of like the big, big success, because then you know you have to keep that up. And the responsibilities that come with great success are actually what scare you. You believe you belong in the room. You're just exhausted by the idea of like, oh, now I got to just keep doing this, you know? And that rang very true for me. So I totally empathize with people who have imposter syndrome. But as, you know, the three years since having that conversation, I've been like, you know, I think, I think she was right. I think that's, and I've, I've been working to overcome it because I think sometimes I, I'll kind of humble myself in a way I shouldn't around people or I'll do, say something not with a lack of confidence, but I just, I don't aim enough for the moon, you know? I'm like, yes. yeah, let me just take it slow and steady, play it safe. Uh, and certainly there've been times in my life where 
taking a risk and being bold and being honest or or forthright has bit me. <laughs> but but I rather, you know, you, you know how it is. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah has, that, has that been difficult to recover from though? Has it ever put you in a in a place mentally where it's been hard to come back from? Well, that's a good question. You know, on a personal level, there's definitely been some things outside of my career where I've not played it safe. And I certainly have grown to regret it. Oh, or instantly regretted it even. Uh, and it took, it took some time for me to bounce back. But in terms of my career, even the missteps I've taken from taking some big risk, I've ultimately I felt good that I did it because I learned something from it and I became stronger because of it. I, and when, shortly after I left college, about a couple of years after, about three years, two or three years after that, I, I made a feature film with my longtime producing partner, Robbie Davila's and for Red Flag Media Productions, this is our production company. And um, we made a feature film called My Friend Violet. You can check it out. It's on Amazon Prime, I believe. It might be on another streaming platform, but I know it's on Amazon Prime, And at, at the very least. And this was a film It was written by one of my good friends, Michael Montgomery. It was a great script. I like read it in one sitting, he sent it to me. I was like, well, I'll just read the first 10 pages and then I'll come back and read it later. And then all of a sudden, an hour and a half had passed by and I read the entire script uh, cover to cover. And I was like, oh, this is good. And um, so I was like, let's make this movie. And it was something we only had, we paid out of pocket. We had one investor who gave us a nice chunk of change, but certainly not enough to make the movie. So everything else came out of pocket. We had a $10,000 production budget. And it was, this was like not how you do a low budget film. It was too many locations, too many characters, a lot of stuff that we had to pay for. And, you know, I'm paying out my accounts, you know, I'm taking out loans. I'm like maxing out my credit card to do this. And we, we shot it. It was, a very difficult experience. We had several days that were miserable. There was one day we had to shoot 25 pages. I was not prepared for the amount of work that was. And my, my poor actors were, I was so inexperienced. Uh, we, we finished on time and we finished on budget. We had 10 days to shoot. We shot it over the summer. We spread out those 10 days over the course of like four weeks. And we had a $10,000 budget. We could, not go over that budget and we didn't but my actor one of my actors who i won't say because in case she doesn't want that out there but one of my actors came up to me and she was like it almost word for word she was like get your shit together <laughs> and it was it was kind of a wake-up call it was it was a very and i'm so glad that she was honest with me in that way and uh, that kind of helped me finish strong with the film, but they, the actors got to a point where they, I could tell they didn't have confidence that I was doing a good enough job. You know, they were basically looking for the DP to like get them the right shot. And, you know, I can't blame them. I was, I was a mess. My producing was keeping the production from going off the rails, but as a director, I was, I was really failing. And um, if we finished strong, we had a, the movie came together. We spent a year in post-production to, clean it up, make sure it looked good, did some ADR stuff to fill in some gaps, color correction editing. And uh, then we got into the NoHo Cinefest 
and we were the closing night feature, which was really cool. And you know, the actors kind of came. We had about eighty peeps, some odd people show up to the premiere, and the actors were like, "Oh, this came out pretty well. It actually looks really good." <laughs> I was like, "Thanks," I, but I, I still, I told people before that if there is a hell, I think it would just be me reliving that production. Oh god. It was almost everything wrong that happened on that production, like at the end of the day was like my fault. I mean, yeah, there were some things around my control and but if I was a better director at the time, I would have been able to roll with the punches. You know, that's how I see it. Uh but it came out okay. You know, it's gotten some good reviews. People seem to like it. It has it has a great cast. Like and crew that have gone on to be very successful. It stars uh, Reagan James, who's been in a few things. Allegra Edwards, who's on that Amazon show Upload now. Clayton Snyder, who's on Liz McGuire. Uh, Ryan Napier, who's done a couple of things. Um, you know, so we've we had some really nice. Tyrone Power Jr., son of the famous Tyrone Power, he was in it. So you know, we had some really cool people in this uh, production, and thank. God, I didn't completely mess it up and that it's okay. But I just, I see all the mistakes. Other people have been like, you you talk about this movie, like it's so bad. I watched it last night and it was fine. And I'm like, well, you don't know everything I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> like that, but that's like, just to give, and I'm sure people who are listening to this have had pro- creative projects like that or any projects yeah. like that. But it was just like my, I took a risk. I think it paid off in the sense that I learned more about myself and I kind of had to put up or shut up eventually. Yeah. Yeah. But gosh, did it blow up in my face. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose though, that you, uh, you, you're part of that, that, that filmmaking mentality. You look at Sam Raimi, uh, Kevin Smith, they both started off with extremely low budget uh, films and used ingenuity and hard work to produce clerks and the evil dead so you, you you're in a good uh, a good group there it's a really good group to be in I'm, I'm glad to know that there's some really good and successful directors who've had long careers who their first few projects they weren't super excited about because like before sam raimi did evil dead one which he wasn't happy i mean he was so unpleased with Evil Dead, that he ended up, Evil Dead 2 is essentially a reboot. But he also did a little short called uh, uh, Within the Woods, I believe, uh, which I just found out about recently, which was basically a prequel to Evil Dead. It was him kind of figuring out some of the ideas that would become his hallmark. And uh, Martin Scorsese also has a feature film early from his career that he's not crazy about that has Harvey Keitel in the lead and, you know. Mean Streets. Yes, yes, and he's 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 not a fan of it. That's what I've understood. So you know, it does give me some comfort to know that you can screw up early on and still find your voice. But I I'd certainly I almost gave up directing after that. I was I was a little I thought well you know writing was writing and producing were always my two like that's how I came into the industry. That's what I was like mainly focused on. And directing was just kind of something I thought. Well, you know, I like to direct some stories and uh, that attitude seeped into my early work because it wasn't, I wasn't taking directing seriously as I should. I was thinking of directing as this kind of fun thing when really directing is, 
it's one of the most blue collar jobs you could possibly have, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I used to. Do you think it's the hardest job in the in the movie? Mm. Uh, you know, I still think the grips might have it worse. <laughs> yeah, I'll give that one, yeah. <laughs> you know, I definitely think it's, it has. The, I think the director has the most pressure because if yeah. if the movie doesn't do well, you're going to take all the blame. Um, if the budget doesn't come out the way it needs to. It's not the line producer's fault. It's not the executive mm. producer's fault. It is the director's fault. If the yeah. script's bad, it's the director's fault. You know, it's, yeah. it's yeah. so, you know, there's no shielding that you get. You get a lot of, you get a lot of praise, in my opinion, undeserved praise if the movie does well, but you also get a lot of undeserved hate if the movie doesn't do well. So. Um, it's, it's a bit like a, a sports coach, isn't it? You know, they, the players don't perform or the, the athletes don't perform for them, but the coach gets it in the neck at the end. It's That's a very good example of it. You know, you're just like, oh, I thought I did a good job. I'm like, no, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, no, 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 no. <laughs> Off you go. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to be a coach or a director. I don't think I could take the, uh, the stress. So uh, kudos for you for surviving that one. Did it get easier? It did. I, I had to be really serious with myself. After I made my friend Violet, I didn't direct anything for about two years. I wrote and still produced stuff and helped my friends out with projects. But I literally went through every short film and feature that I directed. And I wrote a notebook of just like, I could have done this better here. This was good. This could have been better. This was really bad. What could I have done to fix it? And I just went through scene by scene almost shot by shot and just hypercritical analyze myself. And then I was like, okay, maybe I'm ready to go. And from there, I actually ended up doing theater for a little while because uh, I love theater and theater was something that didn't cost as much to put on a show. And I also could get people to pay money to come see the show. So I actually could make some money back. And uh, this makes me sound so awful, but I, no, but I also. I, but the thing is that it, it it's a product, isn't it? it, it as, as much of it as is, is art, it's still a product, and you need to be able to fund the next part or the or the the part that's cost part of your life doing that. Right, you know, I'm 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 so respect directors who go out there, theater or film, and they are like, I just want to make art. I don't care how much money this makes and to a certain degree there there is that side of me that's just like this is just a good story and i just want to get it out there but typically speaking even if i'm like this is a great story i i do ask myself the question like will this sell will this make money i guess i'm afraid that if i make too many projects that don't make money i'll be done you know i'll be i won't get to make it you know it's i think for every you know three movies that make money you can have one that's like i just made this for me i don't care if it makes money but even that should be probably well reviewed <laughs> so yeah, no, no, i would i would agree because because you, you've seen even established directors have had that that drop off in the in the curve and the popularity where they've done one two three good films then maybe done four or five haven't been so good and then they've struggled to get a, a good script for the sixth film so yeah it's definitely true that 
Yeah, there's a lot of truth. And I understand the artist's ability. Like, I don't really, it's like, oh, I don't care about that. And I'm like, but, you know, to a certain degree, you shouldn't. And to another degree, you you definitely should because you are selling a product. And also, don't you want to make something that people actually want to see? And, I, you know, there's obviously marketing departments and all this other stuff that the director doesn't have control over or the writer doesn't have control over. But me at my level, I, I have to, when I do a play for like the Hollywood Fringe or some sort of festival, I have to do the marketing. I have to get out there and get through the comments. I'm happy to say that every play I have written and or produced directed has made a profit, like it made a true profit when it comes out. And that's hard in theater. Um, but, but it's, you know, for me, it's like, I, I like to write it out. I have like a wall of a board of ideas and I do go through them. This is the producer part of my brain. I go through them like, okay, this is good. Can it get butts in the seats? You know, when should this be released? Is this no longer, is the genre too flooded right now? You know, I, I try to really consciously think about those decisions um, whenever I'm doing something. And directing theater is, it's so different from directing film. It, it's much more about the actors. It's much more about the blocking and the staging than it is with film. Film, you know, you got to get the camera and then you've got to block out that shot. With stage, people can move around. They can do, you know, they're running around. They're doing all this different kind of stuff. You're, your directing is so different than the, the minute detail of a film. Um, and, but doing that, directing theater gave me the confidence to kind of go into, back into directing film. Because in my opinion, if you can direct a good stage play, you can direct a good film. Because mm -hmm. uh, you'll have more help on a film yeah. than you will. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, stage, here I am, I'm moving the lights, I'm doing this, I'm every single time these people rehearse, I have to be there. Film, it's like, you should know your lines. Let's, let's do a little rehearsal. All right, come on set, stand here, stand here. Don't worry, you get 10 chances to get this right. <laughs> so, <laughs> <it's really> <laughs> yeah, because the, the, the beauty about theater and i think what attracts people to theater mainly is the is the immediacy of it the the fact yes. that it's it it's always one take and that one take has to be the best take um particularly with musical theater you know you know musicians and singers are prone to hitting the odd duff note here and there uh the, the, the strain and pressure on them must be immense oh i can't even i i can't even imagine i'm not an actor uh, but I always, I respect actors so much, particularly when they're having to do a show live like that, because I'm like, one mistake, and you can get lost. You can get lost really easily. And I tried to tell my actors, particularly when I've written the script, to not be too precious about my own lines. Because I'm like, look, I need you to understand what the gist of the scene is, not necessarily worry about the memorization. Obviously, I want you to say the lines how I wrote them, but... What's more important to me as a director for the show is that you understand what the scene is, what it's about, what your character wants, what the other character wants, what's the conflict. So even if you get lost, even if you miss a line, you can pull it together. You can keep everything flowing. And thankfully, that's that's so far in my theater career in terms of plays that have gone up, uh, that hasn't ever been a problem. We've had some nights where people have missed complete, very important lines. and. 
but but the people on stage understand the scene and what's happening so well that they've been able to just improv in the moment and fix it. And so, you know, that's <laughs> it's an exciting thing as a director. On it. But you know, you're doing a film, and you know, there's if you guys shoot everything and then you realize like, oh, this scene now is a little weird. Either do reshoots or just find a way to edit around it. And it's a completely different. It's still very difficult, but it's a completely different mindset and uh, risk reward factor you're dealing with <laughs> yeah totally yeah so how did it feel when you got your first award or your first nomination for an award oh boy yeah, that's a good question i the first real like oh my gosh like i'm doing it it's, i i uh in 2018 i made a show called blackball which is about the rise and fall of negro league baseball I had a terrific cast, uh, Asia Lynn Pitts, David, um, and David J. And then, um, I had, uh, Alex Skinner, Robbie DeVillas, and we had this wonderful, wonderful performance, Tuan Pope. And these, these actors, they just clicked immediately. And they really understood each other. They understood what they were trying to do. They had their lines memorized within like two weeks of our table read. We, we didn't even open for like another two months and they were already just, they just clicked. Sometimes you get lightning in the bottle like that where everyone just is on the same page. And they really just came together and made a great show. And we ended up getting nominated for Best Ensemble. And it was, it was really strange. Um, it was really uh, strange to see that because we, so the Hollywood Fringe Festival, which is where we perform this show, there's theater companies. I don't have a theater company. I have a general media company that I run with Robbie and a few other affiliate people. We don't have a theater company. And the award nominations and wins are based off of the votes of people who are part of the fringe community. So this is like, thousands of people voting and we you know we didn't have the big push behind us of a major theater company doing another show like one of four shows of the year so i didn't know i didn't expect us to get nominated because i felt that we were just didn't weren't gonna have the voting numbers but we were actually the second highest grossing play of the theater that uh, we were performed at that summer a lot of people, we sold out every show except one, which was like a full house. And so we got nominated for Best Ensemble, which was, I was just so happy for my actors. Uh, you know, David uh, J. Cork, who played Jackie Robinson in this play, he's gone on to be in a lot of great projects. He was like in Maplethorpe, and he's been on a couple of TV shows. And Alex Skinner's been on some stuff, like uh, Insecure Asia, I just worked up on a feature. And Tuan's been a few things. Sorry, I'm just going to draw their names. <laughs> Robbie as well. They've all got some great stuff. But I was just so proud of them because when I do something, when I do a project, it's not just for my own benefit. I don't want to be the only person getting praise. I want the actors I've worked with to get work. I want someone to see them and, and ask them to audition or give them a part. And I want the crew that I work with to also get some recognition and get to go some places. And so it was beautiful to see them so beloved and to get nominated out of like 200 other shows that were in that category 
to get nominated for ensemble was it, it was we didn't win that year but it felt like okay it's undeniable now that i have what it takes and it was a real redemptive moment yeah. for me it was a real moment where i felt like for years i felt like i was still trying to prove myself as a director and i think that nomination is when i no longer had the doubts about my skill i was like i, I can do this and so it was, it was really it was a great night it was a great um moment for me <laughs> That's that's awesome because it, it it is about you know results at the end of the day you know the the, the beauty of the art the the beauty of the content but having a, a whole cast a whole crew come together and produce something which is recognised by other people poof, that's it doesn't get higher praise than that does it it really doesn't because you can't say like oh you know well they got it because the people who are on the judging committee like Matt or you know oh he got it because of like politics of like it's an important play it's talking about black and american history no it's like because people went to see the play and even though they maybe have seen dozens of other plays this summer they said you know the one that stuck with me the ensemble that stuck with me was from blackball and that means a lot i mean the next year we actually ended up winning best comedy with a show we did and that was like euphoric i mean that was beyond my wildest expectations <laughs> yeah I, I i can't comprehend that um not not being in the in the in the field that you're in and, and producing something of such scale i i can't get my head around how all that hard work all those moving pieces coming together and, and then somebody saying you know what in in this year you were the absolute best that must be an amazing feeling it is, it, it, and I want to. I want to be clear. Even though, like you know, earlier I was saying, like, oh, you know, it's, I care about like how much money and how much popularity the, the projects get. I, I really try to never go into writing or directing or whatever anything thinking about the awards. You know, I just try to make the best product that I can, the best uh, project, the best art piece, and then whatever happens after that happens. And, but I, I cannot lie when I say that I was, I, I don't want to say that I was, wasn't surprised when we got nominated. I was certainly surprised when we won. I did not think it was a play called Olivia Wilde does not survive the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> it was a comedy, as you can imagine. Yep. We, we did it at the 2019 Hollywood Fringe. Uh, that year was especially cool because there was no New York Fringe. So we were the largest fringe in America that year. And there was about almost 500 shows uh, that were out there. We were competing with about almost 300 shows, I wanna say in our category of comedy, maybe a little bit less, like about 250. So, you know, we were not expecting to win, but I'll be lying if there wasn't a point within the show where I was like, oh, I think we're gonna get nominated. Just because of people's reactions, the way people were laughing, the way that people were, responding to the show you know we got like, a couple standing ovations and everything like that and i'm like oh i think we i think we hit something here <laughs> but i didn't know that while writing it <laughs> you know I, started, I was just like let me make this silly little play and see what happens <laughs> i love it and it's uh it wasn't written about olivia wilde um although she did she make some kind of contact with you or anything <laughs> no it's, it's kind of like a running joke 
that I had like I was capitalized on capitalizing on like since college. You know, I mean, Olivia Wilde is I say this respectfully. She's a gorgeous human being. So I had just made all these Olivia Wilde like jokes, like oh she's she's super pretty, super hot, and I was like I had this dream. Honest to goodness, had this dream where I had to put on a theater show for this like dictator. And if it wasn't good, they were gonna execute me on state TV. <laughs> and I woke up and I was like, that's a great, that's a great concept for a play. And this is like about a, this is about two years before, it was like 2017. <laughs> and so I started to like slowly build that uh, idea for the show. And then I was like, okay, well, who's, what's the show gonna be? And I was like, it should be the importance of being earnest. And then I was like, wait a second, once if this, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic world that only has a few movies and plays that have survived and Oscar Wilde is one of them. So they think Oscar Wilde is like the greatest playwright to ever live. And maybe he was, but they don't even know who William Shakespeare was. They all Shakespeare's works got lost, which was my, it was my kind of dig on theater continually dipping back into the well of Shakespeare, which I think Shakespeare would actually be very upset about, because I think Shakespeare was always like, yeah. let's put on some new plays. And I don't get me wrong, I love a good Shakespeare play, but I think he's a little overused. And so uh, I was like, let's do some Oscar Wilde, let's give him some love. And so I linked Olivia Wilde with Oscar Wilde. And so they worship Olivia Wilde in this future, thinking that she was like a deity, because they just see her on screen. And they just think she's so beautiful. Everyone must have worshipped her. And <laughs> so uh, Olivia Wilde did find out about this play, and she tweeted about it, and she said, uh, "Thanks, I think." You know, so, <laughs> which is I think the best. I, I I'm glad she didn't see the show because you know maybe plausible deniability with like any law, potential lawsuit or something. But the show's not really about her. It 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 just she's uses this moniker for a couple of jokes we make and. Um, it was all in good fun. I, I had a very strict rule when I was writing the play that any jokes I made about celebrities or any particular city or anything, we, we take jabs a lot of people, but I was like, if someone from this place or who was this person exactly was in the room, I want to be able to say comfortably that I can make this joke to their face and that they, I don't think they would be upset by it or offended. We, it was definitely mean. We weren't punching down. It was just kind of like, um, we weren't like doing, we weren't trying to make anyone upset. We were just kind of poking fun at Hollywood culture. Uh, we did get to test that theory because uh, Lindsay Finesca, who was on the show Hi, I Met Your Mother, she came to a show and we have a, Hi, we have a big Hi, I Met Your Mother joke in that play that really pokes fun of the show and particularly the show's ending. And she apparently loved it. She th apparently thought it was hilarious. You know, she thought it was great. So, you know, we did get to test the theory a little bit, but it was, you know, it was, I don't know what I would have done if Olivia Wilde had shown up one night. I mean, I think she would have found it very humorous. I think she has a good sense of humor, but I still would have been sweating, I think. <laughs> it's, it's a pity that it, was, it only made it to theaters because that's the kind of film I'd really like to see. You know, that kind of dystopian future where they've confused entertainment and quality of writers. That's that'd be really, really good. That <laughs> thank you. I mean, I hope one day I get I'll to, give you 10 grand. <laughs> oh, there you go. I'm already halfway there, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> no, uh, I would love to turn it into a movie. I think it would be really funny as a movie as well. Um, I want, I mean, I would have to keep Olivia Wilde, but I actually wonder if it's funnier or less funny because when I made it in 2019, she had just released Booksmart like a few weeks before we opened. And so like people who knew who she was, but she wasn't like, she's certainly not as popular, as famous as she is now. So it was kind of funny that it was like this, not random, but just kind of like, oh, Olivia Wilde, interesting choice of the celebrity to pick. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if the jokes would hit differently now that she's like more prominent. But I mean, mm. I have to do it. I mean, it, it's a whole joke of the play is that they confused her. They think that she's the descendant from Oscar Wilde. Like it's, they've literally built a religion off of this. So it's, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's one a great day, premise. I, it really is. Thank you. They, but yeah, no, we winning best comedy. We were psyched. The, the night we won best comedy after the award show, we went down to the complex theaters where we had the show, which no longer exists, unfortunately. And uh, we were with Monica uh, Hawk, who was our kind of, uh, she was the woman who ran the theater, but she always was very caring towards us. And we just all got drunk and did karaoke until like 3 a.m. <laughs> anyway, it was a great moment. It was a great moment. It was certainly, it certainly changed the trajectory of my career. I think people started to take me a lot more seriously. And I didn't even, I didn't direct that play. Robbie DeVillis directed it, my producing partner. But I, you know, I produced it, I wrote it, and obviously we both had a very synced up vision. But regardless, when that play came out, it kind of solidified me within the theater and film community is like, this guy knows what he's doing. And so I was, I was very grateful for that experience. Matthew then, um, who would you say were your um, inspirations? Ooh, they, you know, that's always a good question. I always, I always get stumped on this question a little bit because, you know, there's so many answers I could say, but, you know, obviously my family was a big influence on me. Uh, as we talked about before, you know, my parents were very supportive of the arts or my grandparents. And uh, they're all supportive, like history and culture, the arts. And so they always really inspired me to keep going and to keep pushing it. You know, I have long conversations about them, about the little research that I had done for a latest uh, play or film script. And then, you know, with the works of people, I was as a kid, I was always really drawn to the works of people, uh, photographers like Gordon Parks and Langston Hughes. <laughs> uh, Maya Angelou, they had like, a lot of things I liked and a lot of work that I really gravitated uh, towards. But of course, you know, George Lucas, Spielberg, Michael Mann, um, Karen Kasuma, and then uh, Audrey Wells. I mean, they really um, influenced a lot of my filmmaking. And more recently, you know, we've had people like Jordan Peele, Ari Aster, um, who have really pushed forward this kind of my thinking you're like, oh, wow, well, how are they doing this? How are they putting this together? And that inspiration draws into me. I, I think for me, it's about using storytelling to give a different perspective to people, sometimes even to myself. There's oftentimes I'm writing a script and the characters and the style that I'm trying to go into will influence not necessarily my beliefs, but what I try to have the movie say, because it's sometimes your characters will end up giving a message that maybe you don't agree with fully or even agree with it completely at all, but it just makes sense for the style and tone that you're trying to evoke. 
So here's the a bit of a tough question, and it might be a, a little bit of an unfair question, but if you could remake any film uh, from from your from your history, which one would it be? Oh man. <laughs> okay, so the, I, you know, on a general sense, I'm always like, oh well, do we need remakes? But I do think remakes, particularly when you can bring in some new angle to the story, are really really fun. So. The one I've always wanted to do, I saw this film first when I was in college, and it's a 1932 film called I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Uh, stars uh, Paul Mooney, and it was directed by Mervyn Leroy and nominated for several uh, Oscars. But what's great about it, it's the 1930s, you know, it's depression, it's uh, people are desperate, and it's this guy, this white man, who's just at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, he's trying to make an honest buck, he's trying to make an honest living, he's trying to do everything right, gets caught up in the wrong situation, ends up going to prison, his whole life gets uprooted, reputation, all that jazz. And, you know, it ends up him like having to find a way to escape from prison just because the prison industrial complex is so brutal and so unfair. And the justice system is so broken. And unfortunately, not much has improved uh, since the 1930s here in America. With our prison system, with our justice system, with how the rich and wealthy can get off, but the poor people are often sent to jail to basically work prison labor, uh, prison slave labor. So I just thought, you know, updating that for today and paying homage to the film by saying, look, all these problems they talked about nearly a hundred years ago haven't gotten much better. In some ways, they've gotten worse. And showing that maybe with an African-American male going through similar things, I think would be a very powerful, very poignant way to kind of show like this is still happening. Um, I think it would be a great companion piece. That's the way I would shoot it. I would, I would make it that it would be a companion piece of the original, not one meant to replace it, but one meant to be watched back to back with the <laughs> original interpretation. So that's that's my answer for a remake I'd love to do. That's a fantastic answer, and that's that's one for me to uh, to watch because I haven't actually seen that film. So, and this may spin Ooh. off from that film. Uh, is there an actor who you would absolutely love to work with? Gosh, man! <laughs> you know, it's, it, uh, now we're going to listen to this, and all the other actors who I want to work with will be like, "Oh, uh, he didn't mention me." <laughs> no, there's so many actors I want, but I won't. I won't. You know, belabor the point with a lot. But I, if you, if I may give three really quick answers. The first, yeah, I would love to work with Sinai Lathan. Uh, I've read in the script that I think she would be perfect for the lead. I've always appreciated her acting since Love and Basketball, growing up seeing as a kid. I think she's a tremendous actress who's underutilized in the industry. And I would love, love to work with her. Um, you know, another person I've always wanted to work with, always wanted to gets something with is um uh, rachel mcadams i think she is another underrated and underappreciated actress i don't think she ever misses i think no matter what the medium is the genre the tone the character she's playing she always gives just like a spot-on performance and it's it's almost like you know you're just like wow how did she do that um and then i think you know to put it to throw uh uh, maybe uh, someone else in there just to mix it up a little bit. Another actor I would truly, I mean, this is kind of a cheat. I I, I acknowledge that, that this is kind of a cheat. 
but I would love to work with uh, uh, Lakeith Stanfield, who was in like Judas and the Black Messiah. He was in, had a very small part in Get Out. He's been doing a lot of stuff. He was on a show Atlanta. I just think he's a really magnetic actor and there's something about him. There's a quiet power to him. There's so many other actors I'm leaving off this list, by the way. There's like a hundred actors I want to work with, but you know, those are the first three that popped in my head when I thought about it. And I just, there's scripts and things I would love to do and bring them into and be like, hey, would you do this? And I feel like they would just give great performances. And I think the thing that, if we, if we look at all the stuff that you've done in the past and the stuff that you're coming up to do and, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to start working with some of these actors. So uh, if I was you, I'd draw that list up and start knocking them off one at a time. <laughs> you know, I think you've, hey. you've got a good chance of getting there, I think. I like that. I, that's the energy I'm taking. I agree. I have a good chance. So, you know, what? I'm going to start putting that together. Yeah, good man. Good man. <laughs> um, so what's next for you then? Uh, so next, uh, pending what, you know, the writer strike might throw a few things off, but I think in a general sense, uh, I'm going to be directing a romantic drama, which will be very nice. I just done a lot of horror films, so it'll be nice to kind of have a little change of pace. It'll be a little bit more sweet and sentimental. So yeah, I'm directing in July a dark romantic comedy in Portland, Oregon, and so that's going to be something I'm really excited to do. So those are kind of the next two immediate projects I have, and I'm hoping to get this sci-fi horror thriller uh, that I want to write and direct off the ground as well. But the media too are romantic drama and then dark comedic rom-com. Fantastic. And, you know, they, they, they do say that uh, variety is the spice of life and you should mix it up a little bit, shouldn't you? I agree. I never want to be trapped in two genres. I don't think you'll ever see me do more than two or three of the same genre in a row. Mm. And then I'll be very quick to, I want to switch it up. All right, all right, okay, <laughs> enough of this genre. <laughs> time to try a different one <laughs> yeah good call good call well we've we've come to the end of our time so i'd just like to say a big 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 thank you to you for taking so much of your time out and and giving up so much for the for the listeners and for me it's it's been a real treat to to get to know you and talk to you over the past couple of days um i will of course put all of your social medias up on the uh, with the episode for the podcast but it just remains for me to say a big big thank you matthew Oh, thank you so much for having me here. And I would love to come back on again anytime. This was wonderful. Thank you for letting me just talk about my passion like this. You're very, very welcome. And of course, we'll have you back. So uh, thank you for now. Thank you for listening to uh, this episode. Thank you to our guest. As always, please like, share and subscribe. Feel free to uh, hit us up on any of the socials. Uh, and our website is www.mondostreet.co.uk. Looking forward to seeing you again on our next episode. Bye.